about to hear part two to this episode of climate mayhem if you haven't already go listen to part one to get the full story it sounds like you've started to grow kind of your service offerings and i'm assuming product offerings you're the you're the chief product officer here so talk a little bit more about these newer the policy initiatives the other initiatives you just kind of highlighted i think the main um you know growth areas are really building out the software side. So we have a SaaS tool where you can manage your carbon. I'll talk more about that in a second. And just and making the um, carbon removal bit a lot more approachable. That's been an important change for us. So like when we first started, it really was the Microsofts, the Shopify's, those were early clients. There's others that I can't share the names of, but very sophisticated, large organizations with sustainability teams who had specific questions on carbon removal. They'd already made a commitment, some sort of climate commitment. They wanted to work with Carbon Direct to execute on it. Sometimes it was on contracting, reviewing specific projects um, from a scientific lens. We did a lot of that work. It was quite bespoke and also very, very serious, I would say. Not approachable to the standard run-of-the-mill, like, I'm a program manager in an organization. I don't know if we have a climate commitment or to the extent we do, it's kind of loose. I want to help define that and I want to start acting, help me. We weren't great for that. Now we're really good at that. So we've, we've evolved our, our team to help all different types of organizations. We've evolved our software to do that as well. I think that's been a big shift for us. So it's not just Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that can get access to this incredible kind of science team and also commercial team that has been working in this space for a long time. On the software side, all of this needs to scale, right? I was talking about the supply, carbon removal suppliers themselves scaling. Carbon management also needs to scale. If if you want to scale by finding an expert who can hold your hand through the whole thing, you're going to be challenged because there's not that many out there. So we think software is a really important pathway for carbon management to become embedded in every organization. And we're building tools to do that. The first few, few tools we built, one is specific to carbon removal. So we capture data and information from carbon removal developers and suppliers, make that really accessible to potential buyers. And we also have a platform where you can review projects and make purchases. So that's wow. that's exciting. And then um, we have a carbon, what we call carbon footprinting tool. You send us data about your business operations. We ingest it evaluate it and give you reports and guidance on how to reduce and also guide you on how to remove. So you can kind of start to see the full package coming together. That reductions piece um, is going to be an area that grows a lot in every organization over time. Like how many options do you have as as a company Mm. to reduce? Mm -hmm. I can't send my employees on carbon neutral flights unless I have a lot of purchasing power. I can't change my utility company's way of operating. So we try and help with that, but there's a lot that we can do with supply chain and with creating incentive structures for for downstream providers to your organization to change. That's where I think the most growth will come. 
but for now, you know, focusing on getting the footprint right, doing the removals and just understanding the pathways is, is critical. So does this go back to kind of that management or measurement conversation we were having a second ago, which was your tool will allow, will ingest what a company is kind of how they operate, what, what their major functions are, and you will kind of give back a, a, a measurement or a, a number or a, a, maybe some ideas of where goals to hit, something like that? Yep, we'll do that. We do it in a very robust way. I think it's quite defensible and auditable. Not everybody is, is doing it with kind of the level of depth that we are. That's not important for everybody, but we do think it's important long-term if you think that your emissions are, well, let me give you a very clear example. We did our own emissions across our tool and, and several other companies' tools. Ours showed about two and a half X what anybody else's tool showed in terms of emissions. And the reason, the primary reason for us, not getting like the total number specifically, was contrails from airplanes actually have a pretty significant warming effect. And so if you're flying a lot, those contrails matter. And this is... What are contrails? Contrails is the vapor. When you look up in a plane, you see the white lines behind. It's the vapor it. that comes okay. off the end of the wings. Now, I'm the wrong person to ask in terms of the exact climate impact they have, but it is very, very significant. It's very established. This isn't a point of debate. But that's the type of stuff that the typical tool that's just looking at how much fuel was burned in a flight and applying emissions to that, they're not considering the actual effects of that flight itself. And this mm -hmm. is getting into some deeper measurement and scientific stuff. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that we're really focused on because you don't want to go out and say, my emissions are 2000 a year in my organization. And then three years later, when the science gets stronger and people start to accept these things that have been known for a while, like contrails, it's like, well, actually three years ago, it wasn't 2000. It was 6,000 or 7,000 because you weren't accounting right. appropriately. That's not a good state to be in. So we're trying to be conservative and make the right choices now, even if it's a bit more painful. So that's super, super defensible long-term. Yeah, super interesting evolution. And it sounds like your new product set, your SaaS model um, is giving you, I'm guessing, more access to more, more customers. So talk a little bit about these kind of bigger companies that are willing to invest in this, the Microsofts, the Spotify's of the world. But what about everybody else? Is it this SaaS product that we need so that we can know where our effect is? What is the appetite right now from a business perspective to start to pay for this, to start to get into this? What are you guys learning about that? I think, you know, we have a very long view and it's mm -hmm. super clear that every organization is going to have to do some form of carbon management and reduce, remove their emissions. And, and there's lots of reasons for it. There's regulatory pressure that's continuing to mount. There's also regulatory incentives. So the IRA has suddenly made a lot of fuel pathways cheaper, carbon capture is cheaper, consumer pressure. You know, it's it's not grown as significantly as one might think. And I, I don't want to overplay this one because consumers say they care a lot about climate, but they're not really acting that way yet. Mm. That said, generational shifts are happening. People under 30 especially care a lot about this. Um, we're going to these uh, recruiting conferences and it, it's just overwhelming the number of young people out of university that want to work in climate. It's not because they think it's the biggest economic opportunity for them, although it probably is, frankly. It's because they care about it and they're pushing the brands that they work with, the companies they work with to do that. But pushing aside the consumer thing entirely, if you can imagine a world where there's some form of regulation on oil companies or, or even only Fortune 100 companies to reduce their carbon emissions, which hard to imagine a world where that doesn't exist, every downstream provider to that company 
has to get in line too because if you're dependent on partners mm. and vendors yeah yeah you know and they don't reduce their emissions and you're not reducing yours and so those vendors are hearing okay well if i want to keep working with facebook or microsoft who's made this claim i need to start acting and then the competitors are saying well if i ever want to get a shot at that contract in the future i better start acting so there's mm. all of these knock-on effects from a organizational commitments like microsoft's or regulatory pressure like you're seeing uh with sec climate disclosures potentially being passed in europe the similar things japan so every business is going to have to start paying attention to this and once your competitors start moving their trajectories downward you're going to want to do the same it's a pretty mm -hmm. it's a pretty clear theory of change i don't know how quickly it will happen but it will happen so who's your sweet spot customer today two different sweet spot customers one is a more sophisticated organization that wants access to the deep scientific expertise we have you know, we've got mm. over 30 mm -hmm. really leading scientists in their fields who understand all the carbon reduction removal pathways um, and are doing interesting, incredible work in those areas. Getting access to them is valuable. People pay for that. So that's that's one bucket. The other is um, it can kind of range in terms of where they're at in their journey, but it's a company that's serious about doing something related to their mission. So we don't get a, a ton of prospects or leads that fit this profile, but even if we did, we wouldn't work with them. The ones who just want to like get a measurement and say they worked with Carbon Direct and then you know tell their employees that are doing something about it, but don't actually act, mm. really uninteresting to us. We don't want to work with them. But if you're serious, if you say, you know what, this is a real problem. I have made a goal, uh, some sort of climate goal, or I want to make a goal and I want to start making progress towards it. It doesn't matter if you're an enormous Fortune 100 company or, you know, a small family office. We want to help you with that, and we have really good tools to help you with that, depending on kind of what your needs are. So, I think it, an interesting thing. Ty, I know you've worked with a lot of software companies. We have a consulting practice, which actually it's probably not the best way to put it. It's not really a true consulting, but we have access to to science teams um, mm -hmm. and you can pay, you pay, you know, it's it's not like an hourly or, or model like that, but you can pay to get access to really deep expertise and things that you care about. So for, for large organizations, sometimes it's pretty valuable. I used to think of that as a little bit of a limitation on the software side. It's actually incredible because you can onboard with the software. We're going to give you some recommendations. Some of those you're like, yep, got it. I can do this, or at least I know how to do it, whether I do it or not. Other ones you're like, they're suggesting I purchase carbon removal in these forms. I don't know what that means. I need to understand it better. I need to defend it to my board. How do I do that? Mm. Instead of sending you like a FAQ doc, you can actually just get on the phone with, you know, if we're talking about a biochar project with the leading biochar scientists in the world. Right. Wow. I think wow. that's a really cool lever that we have and trying to lean into it more. Yeah, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because that's what I was kind of seeing, you know, outside of the fund itself, which I still think is super intriguing, this idea of the services that the scientists provide and now your software SaaS product, how do they play together? And 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 more appropriately, where is it going? You know, you said at the beginning that the, the mission was kind of increase carbon management, make it accessible to a lot more companies. So as you look forward, you know, and you look at this roadmap as the product guy, where do you see this going? Where where are you guys aiming next? Yeah, it's end-to-end -end management. So we're going to get a lot better at the measurement side and more specific. 
ultimately though, all that we care about is action and action comes in two forms. Primarily it's reducing or removing. And I can, I know I've said that 17 times and I'll say it 50 <laughs> more times, but you know, that's, that's what really makes a difference for, for the climate. That's what it's all about. So um, we're going to get much better at the right recommendations at the right time and also helping you understand cost curves and pathways to reduce. I'll give you an example that I was just working on the last couple of weeks with sustainable aviation fuels. Sustainable aviation fuels, there's all different, just like 23 different types, but it's essentially lower carbon intensity fuels relative to, to jet A, which is the primary jet fuel used, used today. They used to be very expensive. They still are very expensive. Um, and there's not a lot of supply, but there's going, we're going to need a lot more supply. So if I'm thinking about if I'm an airline, it's an obvious thing. Like I should probably figure out SAF. But also if I'm a large organization and a lot, big chunk of my emissions come from airline travel, I might be thinking about, could I secure supply for SAF for my private planes? Maybe I could push my even my, my contract with Delta to start using SAF on certain flights that I travel on a lot. That's really expensive right now to secure SAF that's going to be available in five years or 10 years. But with the cost curves, changing it could become cheaper and frankly the ira some of these fuels are going to be cheaper than jet a so what if i invest in that now versus investing in carbon removal credits to offset some of the travel that i'm doing versus investing in a new train line between my two offices in california i'm just making things up but like these are these are choices that are really hard to make. Like, what is one dollar spent on SAF today versus one dollar spent on carbon removal versus one dollar spent on a wreck versus one dollar spent on lower intensive, lower carbon intense concrete for the next building that I that I put up. So we're trying to get really good at giving that guidance so that it's high ROI, high carbon benefit ROI for every dollar spent. And this would be through the SAS dashboard that that companies are are buying into, right? So the way that we approach it, yes, the, but the way that we approach it is science is tip of the sphere, figure out the right pathways, figure yeah. out the right approach. You know, Julio Friedman, who you mentioned earlier, one of the one of the early slash founders of Carbon Direct, invented this thing called the levelized cost of carbon abatement. And it's essentially what I was just talking about. Where do you get the best carbon ROI? Yeah. That's still very bespoke and very hard to do. So there's researchers okay. that spend time on it. As we learn those things, though, it's getting embedded into the product. So some of those things are already in our product today. But, you know, if you're buying carbon management software right now from anybody, it's and we have some really great competitors or frenemies or whatever you want to call them. There's other great organizations doing this. None of it is none of it is awesome yet. It's very far from awesome, but it doesn't really matter if it's good right now. Uh, it would be great if it was. But. Um, what matters is where it's going to be in the next two years, the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, as you're trying to hit that 2030 goal or 2040 goal. And from that, on that time horizon, our software is going to be very, very good. And the customers who are working with us now understand that and are investing in that process with us. So with these two sides, science is the point of the spear, the SaaS product that makes it a little bit more accessible. Where, how are you guys making money today? Like where, when you go into a new company, what is the, what is the typical structure um, and what do they pay for first? It, yeah, it really depends on where they're at. Some are very software first. We want something that's really approachable, easy to onboard quickly. We don't need a whole lot of depth. You know, others are paying us very, very large contracts to spend a lot of time investigating uh, specific parts of their operations. So it kind of depends. 
I think, you know, the, the clear shift though is away from bespoke and more to, as, as things become more normalized in the industry and the expectations mm. are standardized more towards something that you can embed and be part of your long-term organizational planning. So we're seeing that shift start to happen, especially with things like measurement for printing, but even, even with things like understanding carbon removal, there's a period where every single purchase was highly scrutinized and a huge amount of research mm. went into it. Now people are kind of saying, well, I just like, I don't want to do all that research. I don't want to run an RFP. Kind of just want to have it right. packaged and purchased. Um, so this stuff, as it becomes normalized, becomes easier to do with software. Yeah. So this kind of leads into kind of the thesis that we talked about a little bit earlier of people making money in this business. Um, and, and that's kind of our whole thesis this year of talking to for-profit companies that are going after this. It seems like carbon capture is a bit of a technology or carbon management, excuse me, there's a bit of a technology piece of it. There's that there, we need new companies. We need all these different ideas of natural versus engineered, um, et cetera. Then there's you guys have done, which you're kind of playing all you, you've got a fund, you've got a, 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 I know we don't say use the word consultancy, but you've got your point of the spear and the scientists that are doing really heavy lifting bespoke, you know, contracts. And then the SaaS technology platform, you guys have seemed to find a way to make money in the middle of this big thing. Why is that an important way to build this type of business and go out and, and tackle this big problem? Why is it important to make money or? Why yeah, is our, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in for-profit companies for change. You know, we, we've seen the Patagonia example. It's it's a little bit beaten to a pulp at this point, but Yvonne Chouinard has right. been an inspiration for me. And, you know, I think just shows the power of brand. It is a consumer company, but brand that you can build on values that you care about. There's a lot of other people that care about those values. And you know, for us, for profit matters, because frankly, the value in a capitalist society is making money. And we're not going to change that in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 2050, 2100, like, it's going to be hard to see that shift happen. So let's accept that people want to make money, companies want to make money, and figure out ways to make that choice to be also good, operating in a way that's positive for the environment easier. So that's a lot of what we're spending time on is making it so those choices aren't as difficult. Now, I don't want to make it seem like you don't have to make sacrifice. You do, but it's it's sacrifice in a way that will help your business long-term. If I'm starting to decarbonize now, I'm going to be in a much better competitive position in five years, 10 years, mm -hmm. 15 years. I will be better off than my direct competition. I also may be the only one who's able to apply for an RFP with a Microsoft who has a net zero goal. And there's going to be a lot more of those companies over the next few years. It's already, we're already seeing exponential growth in, in um, net zero commitments. I care about it for competitive advantage. I care about it because I want to avoid regulatory risk. What if an administration mm -hmm. comes along in, in eight years or whatever that has very strong views on climate and they start to past pretty progressive legislation in the US. It's already, there's already a threat of it in Europe. You know, I, I view that personally as a very positive thing for the world as an organization that could be quite scary. How do I get in mm. front of that? Um, right. There's investors, activist investors. I mean, we saw it happen at Exxon, but you know, we were really pushing organizations to, uh, to change their practices. And then of course, consumer sentiment. So there's a million different things that are leading you to behave in a less carbon intensive way from a purely business perspective. And by the way, it's just fucking, it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's not, <laughs> this it. is not a hard choice. Yeah. So yeah. 
It's interesting you put it like that. So we're talking about capitalism and a capitalist society of making money matters. And then you're kind of projecting into the future. So if I'm a company, I'm thinking, okay, well, things are going to get worse, right? We're going to get more natural disasters. It's going to become more apparent that climate change is happening. And I've always said before that if you're able to predict the future, you can be rich, you can become rich, right? But predicting the future is hard, but there's really nice indicators or not nice, but clear indicators that we're getting that this has become a bigger and bigger part of our lives. So I guess switching gears a little bit, what is the scaling plan for Carbon Direct since it's a relatively young company? It's only three years old. You get started with something more more consulting-based, drilling into the into the, the software side of things. How do you go from you know removing 500 million tons of carbon per year uh, through your clients or for your clients and, and with them to that scale that's needed, right? The, the 40, 40 billion tons per year and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, just we're nowhere close to 500 million tons today, just to be clear, not that, not that I'm trying to fact check you, but like it's very small right now in the millions, arguably, you could, you could maybe argue tens of millions per year. And then we need to get to 10 billion per year just on carbon removal. And you're right that that 40 billion is the amount global emissions per year. So we also need to reduce by about 35, 40 billion tons per year. So there's a lot that needs to happen pretty quickly here. Our scaling plan, uh, certainly, you know, we're going to continue to invest in our existing business lines, bringing on the world's leading scientists, making sure we nurture them, grow them and grow their influence. We'll continue to invest in software. I think there's a lot that we can do um, in the U.S. still, but also Europe is quite progressive. So it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to to start playing there. And and we're also, frankly, exploring you know work in other economies that are people pay less attention to, like in the Middle East and and parts of Asia. I think that's that's all really important. The biggest thing that we can do, though, frankly, is play our cards um, carefully and ride this out because there will be sea changes, but you know, we're going into a period of economic uncertainty, almost certainly economic mm-hmm. turmoil to an extent. I hope that carbon management isn't what's cut from every organization's budget. And to be clear, we're not seeing that at all. We're getting, we're getting more mm-hmm. lean in than lean out, which is exciting, but that could happen. We need to be very clear that this is a multi-decadal problem. It's not a, you know, mm-hmm. by 2024, we need to fix things. So we're trying to be very careful, think about the long term, make choices for the long term, guide our clients on the long term and run our business for the long term. And if we can do that and keep providing value, then scaling is going to happen sort of automatically. I don't mean to make it simple, but like I went through this with marketing technology where we had a nothing business and then very quickly had a very, very significant business because the industry evolved at the right time and we were in the right place to capture it. Are you guys, real quick, are you guys just in the U.S. or are you in other countries? We have an office in London and, uh, you know, clients are all over the world. Um, we, we service plenty of clients in South America, Asia, Europe, Middle East, and projects also, carbon removal projects are all over the world. So wow. it's a pretty international business. I would say most of the dollars being spent right now are from U.S. Companies, I think U.S. in general is is quite innovative and forward-looking and first movers in many ways. But but it's happening everywhere. In the future, are you all going to be just B two B like you are now, or do you imagine it being as much B two C as B two B? Hard for me to imagine a B two C. I think there's going to be other companies that do that better than we do. 
never say never, I guess, but I like the idea of servicing organizations and then letting those organizations serve their customers. So if they're a B2C company, we make sure that everything on the back end is T's are crossed, I's are dotted, and that they can make credible claims to their customers. Yeah. And I guess with B2B, the biggest chunks of impact can be made that way versus individuals. Uh, and individuals can do the, you know, their own things. They can be a vegetarian, use different forms of transportation. They can be planting trees, like they can get solar, which there's all things in motion with the climate bill that's going to make that easier. But it's, it sounds like you all believe that the B2B route is the best way to, to get closer to that you know, 1.3 trillion that's already in the atmosphere for moving that. And then the, the 40 billion carbon that is every year. Is that right? Companies are acting more than individuals right now. If everybody on the planet started to care about climate change and we're willing to make some sacrifices, that would be a much bigger shift than what we're seeing from businesses. I just think realistically, that's not going to happen. But organizations, you know, face different pressures from different sets of actors and um, seem to be more willing to change right now. Yeah, I could see that. Well, yeah, I've been thinking about this. I want to explore just a tiny bit this idea of the fund side of your business, meaning the where you invest in other companies. And I don't know if this is a way to answer this question, but you know, what if someone else wants to get into the earth saving business? <laughs> you know, they want to go into this space and you guys might be looking. I know, I believe you, you're the thesis of the fund is a growth stage investment. So you're not necessarily early stage startup stage, but with what you know today and someone wanted to get into this earth saving business and wanted to build a startup or, or, or start to go in this path. Where do you think they should head? What are some pitfalls maybe generally they should look out for? And what's some tips or tricks that might get them there a little bit quicker from, from what you know now? Yeah, good question. I mean, I don't work on the fun side, so I'm not going to speak to it from the Carbon Direct perspective. But um, but working with a lot of entrepreneurs in this space, uh, yeah. I think exactly as we were just discussing, building a for-profit organization is a better way to get VC funding than uh, building yeah. a nonprofit, obviously. But to do that well, you know, a couple of really important things need to happen. One is whatever you're doing, it needs to be defensible and credible from a scientific perspective. This all needs to attach to real climate impact. The intermediaries, the ones who are selling bunk offsets, like that stuff is all going to fail if you can't defend it. So, nice. so start with something solid and robust and then make it economically viable. So you know, there's a lot of great technology that has real climate impact. And from equivalency perspective, it's like $5,000 per ton of carbon. If you can't figure out how to get that cost curve down to something more manageable and, and manageable in this mm -hmm. case, is certainly below $100 a ton, probably below $50 a ton. Don't yeah. bother. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a wasted effort because we learn a lot through new technology deployments, even if the cost doesn't come down. But if you want to build a scalable long-term business, it has to be viable. And most projections for cost of carbon are well below, you know, certainly below $200 a ton, often below $100 a ton, somewhere around $50 a ton. So that's kind of your target. And, you know, things aren't that cheap right now, but they need to become that cheap. Yeah, super good advice. And digging into what you guys do and, and, the, and the people you work with on both sides, the supply and demand side of the business, you know, really, it sparked my entrepreneurial, you know, antennae of like, man, there's, there's opportunity here. There's some technology that is going to, to help. But yes, there is this big problem of, of scale of getting it to economically feasible state. So I, yeah, that's super good.
um, advice there. The other side of this is the governments, right? Like I feel like over the last couple of years, carbon capture especially has started to become part of all worldwide governments have started talking about carbon capture. Doesn't necessarily seem to align with that they know exactly what carbon capture means or how to get it done. But, you know, I mean, I've listened to some talks that we feel still feels like we need government involved in. I think you said it earlier where it would be powerful if, if the government got in, if nothing else, to kind of create more regulations, create some goals, create some price stability in the markets, these types of things. What do you see as the biggest thing that we could see from the governments today or what we need from them um, from a, from Carbon Directs or your guys' perspective? The dream answer to this is a carbon tax or kind of global price Got on it. carbon, right? Because then everybody can orient around that. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Carbon tax is the stick version. There's also the carrot version, which is what the IRA is. I'm not going to claim to be an IRA expert, but it essentially makes fuel generation a lot cheaper, alternative fuel generation a lot cheaper. So hydrogen, ammonia, these types of things. And then it makes carbon capture cheaper. It creates a lot of incentive programs to, to capture and store carbon. Really significant change. And you know, when I talked about those prices earlier of getting to $150 a ton, the IRA is doing that for some technologies. And I even mentioned, you know, sustainable aviation fuel as an example. All of those were completely out of bounds of what people would normally pay for jet fuel. With the IRA incentives, several of those fuel pathways are the same cost. And some of them are even below cost. Some of them are even negative wow. cost. In theory, you could, wow. you could almost get paid to create them. So that's really different state of the world now post IRA. I'm not an expert in the IRA itself, but I think in general, like government can be thoughtful about where can we find agreement on things that help many parts of our economy and also help with climate. And the IRA is a great example of this. Um, you know, the Joe Manchin holdout vote well, frustrating for some people, um, you know, it did get get the bill to a point where there's a lot of benefit for all different types of all contingencies of people. And, and frankly, like coal miners benefiting from climate action, I don't have any issue with that. You know, it, those people are going to need jobs in this future economy, too. And so, you know, he's looking out for for that set of his constituents storing carbon underground can be controversial because a lot of that carbon is store, stored in old oil wells oil wells are owned by oil companies to a large degree. So there's economic upside for those oil companies to do carbon capture and storage. Great. Again, <laughs> as long as it comes to climate benefit, for me, I'm okay with it. That may not be the way that everybody thinks, but I think government can find ways to find to identify middle ground opportunities that are good for climate and good for business. I love that perspective. That's powerful perspective to even that holdout vote, which I love that you called out. So with everything that you've kind of seen, now that you're in this space, and I think Carbon Direct is in this unique position where, again, they're working with, you guys are building technology, you're working with suppliers or, or demand, and, and you've got these new, you're seeing these new um, upstarts, these new companies coming in. Now sitting in the seat that you have with the vision that you have, looking forward to the future a bit, what do you think might be the next big step change in climate action or climate sustainability? Oh, great question. I mean. There's one kind of narrow topic, which is uh, called MRV, monitoring, reporting, and verification, or measurement, reporting, and verification. And 
this is important for carbon credits themselves. If we can develop MRV standards, it makes it easier for us to know when a credit is a credit, when a ton is a ton. That's yeah, not easy yeah. today. And with new technologies yeah. developing all the time, it's becoming harder and harder to do. But you know, right now when I buy a forestry credit, there's satellite imagery I can look at. I can see sort of what the baseline of that forest was before and what the carbon project itself generated and, and what that delta is. And I have a reasonably good sense of the credits generated by a specific project, maybe discounted because there's some uncertainty. When I get into mm -hmm. soils, it's a lot harder because you have to go to specific, you know, you have to take soil samples and analyze them. Soil in one sure. location could be very different from soil three feet from it. So wow. it's harder to do the verification there. And then you get into stuff like ocean alkalinity, where you're wow. essentially changing the chemical makeup of the ocean to sequester more carbon really freaking hard to measure wow. and verify yeah. and things like direct air capture a lot easier in a lot of ways but like what is the standard you know what are the tools that everybody's using so that we're looking at that on a like for like basis all of that is brand new so that's that's a big opportunity in the credit space in the reduction space i think uh it comes down to what i was talking about earlier every company needs to embed carbon management and i need to make it part of my procurement process. So I want to know if I'm selecting you, not just what your monthly price is or whatever, but how many tons of CO2 do I have to attribute to working with you? That should just there be part of everything. It will be yeah. part of everything, but the sooner that that happens, the sooner we're able to get the measurement in place and, and make changes, that, that'd be a big sea change. Yeah. Tie it to that buying decision. That's, that's, uh, that's brilliant. I, I like that. I like that a lot. All right, Jacob. Okay, I think it's time. Good. I think it's time. All right, Dana, we're uh, we do something called rapid mayhem questions at the end of every show. So, okay. first question is: Are you ready? Scared. <laughs> are you ready? I, yeah, I'm. I don't think I'm ready for this, but okay. yeah, let's right. do it. You don't, don't be scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> all right, it's going to be around decarbonization, carbon markets, stuff like that. All right, so they're all true or false. True or false: thirty-nine percent of all CO two has been released just in the past 25 years honestly that feels low to me there's been quite a quite rapid growth over the last 25 50 years i don't know 39 percent. that could be right i would guess more like 60 percent or 70 percent okay okay you're right That's, it's uh it's about 50 percent 50 percent and sorry, sorry. Uh, false nice yeah. job false nice nice job next up next he, up he, he does these little trick questions where he is like the same i just tweak it a true, little bit yeah, then he tweaks <laughs> it. yeah you gotta watch out for him yeah uh there's there's about 1.6 trillion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere already. True yeah, that, that is true. Unless we have some trick, that's that's no no true. trick, no trick. Okay. Yep, that's right uh, on. All true. That's right. Uh, number three, so which major... is by the way, that's wild when you think about it. We're right? emitting 40 billion, but you think about how much is already there. That already that there. brings yeah. to bear the carbon removal opportunity. Sorry. I'm, I'm no, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the those first two questions tie into each other. Crazy fact that the weight of the carbon that is it just in the past 25 years is more than the total mass of everything ever built by humans and still standing on Earth to give the audience some sense of how heavy that is. That's that's weighing within our atmosphere right now. It's that's unbelievable. Just, it's pretty. It's I mean, pretty carbon crazy. feels like oh, it's gas, it's ethereal, but like it is a right. real thing. It can be physical. Mm -hmm. It can be solid. People don't always grasp that. Interesting. So bringing yeah. it up. I love it. Now, for the products that can be made with or using carbon, some major products that uh, can be upcycled are polymers, carbonized drinks, and even concrete. True or false? 
I don't know if concrete can be made with CO2, but it can be strengthened with CO2 and you can inject CO2 into it. So, but maybe, uh, maybe that's true. The other ones I think are true. The other ones you listed. Okay. All right. So you picked true. It is true. CO2, I guess, can be substituted for water in curing concrete during the mixing, resulting in a similar mineralization. And then it results in actually the concrete being stronger. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's yeah, true. Yeah. I don't know if it can replace he said that. concrete. He said it could be yeah. strong. Yeah, 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 it's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. He nailed it. <laughs> he did. All right. Last one. Carbon rocks through mineralization is a thing and it costs $419 per ton. Yeah. We talked about this earlier mineralization. So it's true or false whether it costs that much? Yes. Oof. I, I do not know the spot prices for carbon mineralization today. I'll say that feels a little low for today's prices from what I know. I only know a couple of companies doing that, but but it doesn't really matter what the price is today. It will become a lot cheaper. It'll get down to $50 to $100 a ton for sure. Oh, really? Because um, the new technologies? Yeah. Wait, right. is that the price today though? For an, I, that seems low to me. So this is actually a reference from a, a podcast with with Julio and, and John and Julio mentioned it was 150 to 200 dollars. I don't know if that was hypothetical or theoretical. I'm referencing carbon that. mineralization today is 150 to 200. Yeah, yeah interesting. Time. Well, I know I know there are companies where it's a lot more expensive. I also know it's going to get a lot cheaper. Right. So there might be some that yeah. anyway, but yeah, yeah, maybe it's the place general yeah. average. Yeah. But you can buy it for two thousand dollars a ton right now. Even okay, he still got it right. He still got it right. Hey, you still got it right. So, All right, he did a great job. Got them all right. Tim like closed. We're nice. done with those. Nice job. Uh, wrapping up here. So, so Dana, climate change is it's so big. Some people call it a hyper object. It's so hard to grasp. And people often feel helpless in, in helping. What's the equivalent of what a listener can do? Maybe think of what any busy soccer mom or young professional can do. What would you say? Most of your listeners probably have jobs. Push your organization to figure out their carbon footprint is, is the first step. Just do that. It's so easy. It won't cost you that much, you know, in the low tens of thousands of dollars and a couple of weeks of time from somebody on your team. And you can start planning from there. That would be that would be huge. Anything that you do with your organization is probably going to be a much bigger impact than what you do individually. Mm-hmm. But of course, like drive less next time you purchase a car, make it electric, buy less, eat less meat, like you know, all these things. But um, but pressure your organization. And every single one of these robust sustainability programs at large organizations, even like Microsoft, they started with one person deciding that they care. They really did. Wow. And pushing to pushing their higher ups, pushing to do something. So be that person. That's inspirational. I like that. It all started with one. But I also love this. This is a new one. They've all been new. I think we've got a great collection. We ask this question every single time. It's a great collection of what, what listeners can do. So it really helps. That, that, that's a great one. All right, Danny, it was great. Where can we find you, man? Inactive, but on Twitter, at Dane and Margison. Trying to be more active. I'm feeling that pressure right now. Although maybe that's not the best timing to do it. Uh, <laughs> I think you have a great Twitter. LinkedIn yeah. and then um thanks. Thanks. Yeah, currently I talked about Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, which is great. And uh I'm D Margison or Danon at uh, carbondirect.com. And yeah, where can we find Carbon Direct? 
carbondirect.com. There's a dash in the middle. If you know who's sitting on carbondirect.com without the dash, please let me know. I'm trying to get in touch with that. <laughs> trying to get in touch but, with that guy. I might Love know it. a guy. Might yeah. know a guy. Yeah, right. or domain brokers. Feel free to reach out. So appreciate it. Well, this was Thanks a huge so topic. Yeah. Big, big subject. I think it's got to be a big part of our solution. I think Carbon Direct is doing some amazing work, uh, multi-pronged work, multi-year, multi, multi-decade effort here that I think needs to happen. And we really thank you for taking some time and chatting with us and telling us about it today. Awesome. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for caring. Yeah, you too. All thanks right. so much, Dana. See you. Talk to you soon. See you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Boom. How was that? Well, there's more. So keep listening. We speak with climate tech leaders and change makers in EV, reforestation, solar energy, flood mapping, and a whole lot more. Also, you can give feedback or check out show notes at our website, climatemayhem.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Oh, don't forget, if you found this valuable or interesting at all, please hit subscribe. That way we know you're loving it. So just go to Spotify or whatever podcast app you're on, hit that subscribe button at the top. Production was done by Daniel Steenkamp with cover art by Harrison Glenn. This is Jacob Kubica with my legendary colleague, Ty Wolf motherfucking Jones. Peace out, Climate Mayhem. Out. Out.